Let us turn in our Bibles to our text uh, this Lord's Day, Daniel chapter 2. And though we come in these verses to the last verses by way of interpretation of this huge and enormous image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream. Uh, we want to, uh, by way of not just reading the verses from which I'm going to preach this Lord's Day, I want to be able to bring us up to speed by way of reviewing the verses that have proceeded. So we're going to focus on verses 44 and 45 in the sermon, but I want to begin reading uh, Daniel 2, verse 31 through verse 45. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee, shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, 
they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Faithful biblical preaching should indeed be directed to the individual salvation of the souls of sinners. But the goal of the gospel is ultimately to convert not only individuals, but to convert families to Christ and to convert nations, entire nations, to Jesus Christ. Sadly, that biblical truth is foreign to many professing Christians today who do not see that a nation is a moral person, a moral person that is bound to obey the living God, bound to serve Jesus Christ as king and to submit to his moral law, even as individuals are bound to submit to the moral law of Jesus Christ as well. Because we see in Scripture, God not only judges individuals for sin, he also judges nations for sin. Now, if they were not morally culpable, morally accountable to God, why would they endure the judgment of God? For what? But because they are accountable to God. We see throughout Scripture that God not only judges Israel, but judges Gentile nations as well for their idolatry, for their abominations. For example, the ten plagues that were brought against Egypt for the oppression of God's people. That was a, a moral sin, and God judged them for it. What about the Canaanite nations as they come into the land of promise, and God says, Remove these nations out of Canaan. They practice abominations. And I do not want those abominations to be learned by you and for you to follow those abominations. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 and 11, we read, And Israel walked... In the statutes of the heathen, this is the northern kingdom of Israel, they walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. 
And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, carried them away by way of judgment, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. <clears throat> we see in Daniel as well uh, a, a heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar. We haven't gotten there yet, but in chapter 4, uh, God abases a proud Nebuchadnezzar. He abases him. He, he takes away his reason, takes away his mind, so that he wanders about like a wild animal in the forest because he was proud because of his pride. Each of the four kingdoms that we are looking at at this in image are displaced by another kingdom by way of God's judgment upon those particular nations. Ultimately, being the last kingdom, as we'll look at today, the last kingdom judging all of those kingdoms being the kingdom of Jesus Christ, coming against those kingdoms as moral persons that deserve the judgment of God. And if nations, dear ones, are judged by God for their rebellion against Christ and against his moral law, they likewise can be brought to Christ. If they can be judged by Christ, they can be brought to Jesus Christ by way of repentance of their national sins, by way of seeking God's forgiveness, by way of submitting themselves to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. This was in fact done by our faithful forefathers in England, Ireland, and Scotland by means of the Solemn League and Covenant where they, as three kingdoms, submitted themselves to God, to Jesus Christ as king, to reign and to rule over them. The Bible teaches us in Isaiah chapter 19, verses 24 through 25, that there is yet to come in the future a time when these three kingdoms will be joined and united together as one by way of alliances and confederations together as God's people. The kingdom of Egypt, of Assyria, which is modern Iraq, and Israel in Isaiah 19, verses 24 through 25, it says, In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So these kingdoms will be rescued, will be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ as nations, not only as an individual here and there, but as nations, they will be saved. That may not mean every single individual within the nation, but as a, a political unity, as a moral person, they will be saved. They will come to Christ. The leaders, the constitutions, 
will be Christian in nature. In fact, Jesus commanded his ministers in Matthew 28, 19 to disciple all nations. Go ye therefore and teach. The word teach there means disciple. Go ye therefore and teach or disciple all nations. Not a nation here and there, but all nations. And so, as far as the curse of sin has gone, not only to individuals, not only to families, but also to nations, as far as the curse has gone, so far does the grace of God go in delivering from that curse. Think of the most hostile nation to Jesus on earth at this time. We may have different opinions as to which that nation may be, but there are some very hostile nations uh, to Jesus Christ, uh, as well as those who may allow uh, more freedom uh, to worship Jesus Christ, but as a nation are hostile to Jesus Christ like our own. Jesus will bring to an end that nation that is hostile to him at this time. He will bring to an end that nation's rebellion by his sovereign power and by his grace and make that nation a friend and a lover of Jesus Christ and of his kingdom, even Israel as well, the Gentile nations and Israel as well. You see, that's, that's our certain hope uh, from our text today that we want to emphasize. So keep what I've just said in mind as we work through the, the, the text before us. There are three questions uh, that I propose that we look at, consider, and answer today. First question, <clears throat> when will Christ's kingdom overcome the kingdoms of this world? Second question, how will Christ's kingdom overcome the kingdoms of this world? And the third question, is this merely possible or is this a certainty to occur? So the first question, when will Christ's kingdom overcome the kingdoms of this world? Is this a past event that we read of here in the stone that strikes the image? Has that already occurred or is that yet to come? Very briefly by way of review, Daniel has now Explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the enormous image composed of different metals in Daniel 2, verses 31 through 33. And he's also given its interpretation in Daniel 2, verses 36 through 43. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar saw this, this image, uh, 
no doubt the most perplexing part of the, the whole dream was that this little stone is cut out from a mountain and rolls and this huge, enormous image is toppled by this stone, striking the image in the feet, in the toes. And then he saw that this stone that struck the image grows until it becomes a mountain, a huge and mighty mountain that fills the earth. In verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And again, the uh, verse 35 says concerning the, the stone, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This stone is also, when we get to Daniel chapter 7, we will uh, come to repeat a lot of what we are saying and have said in the most recent sermons, uh, but we will repeat them, um, repeat the, the teaching that we find here uh, to a large extent, and that won't hurt us, and that will only help us to go over them by that time in chapter 7, which is probably a few months away, but, but uh, that will help us just to recall what we have already learned in Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel interprets further the meaning of this part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, namely the stone that struck the image. And that has to do again with the first question, well, the first two questions. But the first question is seeking to answer uh, when will Christ's kingdom overcome the kingdoms of this world? And the answer is basically given to us uh, in the first part of Daniel 2.44 and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and so trying to understand again uh, what does this refer to when it says in the days of these kings which kings really becomes an interpretive question is it the, in the days of the kings that uh, would be the four, the four kingdoms that are a part of the image, or would it be the, in the days of these kings that are represented by the ten toes, the feet and the ten toes, that it is then when the image is struck by that stone. So that's basically what we want to consider because that's the, whichever view that it is, um, determines when this is going to take place. And we want to look at these different positions very briefly. 
basically three positions with regard to the striking of the stone uh, at the image. First of all, the first uh, position in the days of these kings was realized at Christ's first coming when Jesus laid the foundation of his kingdom through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And in heaven, he was indeed crowned king of kings and lord of lords, according to Acts 2, verses 33 through 36. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he declares, God has made him both Lord and Christ, Messiah, king. He's and, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was basically an indication that Jesus had been uh, crowned king in heaven. And he was giving these good gifts uh, to the citizens of his kingdom uh, by way of those blessings of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so in this particular instance, <clears throat> it's argued and and uh, reasoned this way, since the United uh, Roman Empire was the one that conquered the previous territory of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, and of Greece, it was then that United Roman Empire that signified and represented all of the other hostile kingdoms the three previous hostile kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And so, um, though, again, the, uh, the kings that are mentioned here uh, are kings that occurred before the coming of Christ, his first coming, yet they're represented by the kingdom of Rome, which was in power, the United Kingdom of Rome, which was in power at the time of Christ's first coming. Now, let me say that it's certainly true, without any question or doubt, that Jesus was a legally crowned king uh, of kings through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, during the United Roman Empire, that the kingdom was indeed established at that time. Uh, that uh, the stone without hands was uh, taken from the mountain supernaturally at that particular point in time. But what we're trying to learn is at what period of time did the stone strike the image? So we can certainly understand that there is truth in what is said by way of, of the stone uh, being cut out of the mountain and uh, the kingdom being established, the foundation laid in the first coming of Christ at the time of the United Roman Empire. And so we, we can certainly agree uh, with that. But the stone doesn't strike the image in the legs of iron. The stone strikes the image in the feet and the toes. And that's when, again, 
we understand that the full realization of Christ's kingdom striking this image occurs at that point in time. And we'll look at that in a moment. A second position, an interpretation of in the days of these kings, as to when that occurred in the days of these kings, uh, was realized either at the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD, uh, when that enemy of God's people, uh, the Jews that persecuted, put Christ to death, persecuted um, the apostles, the early church, as we see in the case of Saul, uh, of Tarsus, uh, being a great persecutor on behalf of the Jewish uh, people against Christ and against uh, his kingdom. But that came to, uh, to an end when the Lord Jesus judged Israel in 70 AD. And so uh, that in the second position, when it speaks of in the days of these kings, uh, meaning again during the uh, unite, time of the United Roman Empire, but looking not so much at uh, the coming of Christ, but the effects of his coming in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or at the time of uh, Constantine, still a part of that United Roman Empire in, and the Treaty of Milan in 313 AD, which is uh, figuratively, figuratively uh, given to us uh, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17 in the sixth seal judgment. So again, uh, though these clearly were God, an ex expression of Christ's judgment against the first great enemy of the church, namely the Jews, uh, and against the second great enemy of the church, pagan paganism of Rome, uh, both of those were brought to an end by way of God's judgment, Christ's judgment uh, on behalf of his people. But we have the same problem as we had with the first instance. The stone doesn't strike the image in the legs of iron during the United, the time of the United Roman Empire. It strikes the image in the feet of and the toes that are composed of clay and iron uh, in the divided kingdom, not in the united kingdom. The third position, which I believe is, is the position that most agreeably comports with the words, the text of our passage here, that uh, the, in the days of these kings uh, refers to a period of time that was yet future to Christ, that was yet future to the apostles, that was yet future to the destruction of Jerusalem, and that was yet future to the establishment of the Treaty of Milan under Constantine which all occurred, as we've noted, 
during the period of the legs of iron, the United Roman Empire. In the days of these kings, in this third position, takes us to a time after United Rome, the legs of iron, to a time of divided Rome, the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. Thus, according to this position, these kings are most likely represented by, again, the ten toes, or the ten horns upon the beast, the ten, horn, or the ten toes in the image, or the ten horns upon the beast uh, in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 13, which, as we noted last Lord's Day, most likely represent the barbarian kingdoms that form, came to form uh, Europe uh, and divided the Roman Empire during the 5th and the 6th centuries. And that continued um, in subsequent centuries uh, and the ten horns or the ten toes just like the church is more visible uh, various periods of history and less visible, so we see these ten toes and we see these ten uh, horns more visible by way of a united power and other times by way of a divided power. We see it more visible at certain periods of history and less visible at other periods of history. So we don't we don't need to conclude that there is no further prophecy that needs to be fulfilled at this time uh, or in the future uh, because uh, we don't see a united uh, Europe uh, as perhaps at the time of, of uh, the revived Roman Empire or uh, prior to the dissolution of the Roman throne in Rome in 476 AD. But we do have expressions of that, do we not, in the European Union, uh, which again, um, I believe is an expression of that revival of the ten toes, of the ten horns. Uh, we saw it under Charlemagne. We saw it uh, uh, historically, I, I would submit to you as well, uh, in periods of time and during the, then after the revived uh, Roman Empire, then the Holy Roman Empire, <clears throat> which succeeded that. And then we see it um, the time of Napoleon. We see it uh, then uh, at the time of uh, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, then we see it at the time of, of Hitler, uh, and uh, since World War II um, in the establishment uh, now of the, of the European Union. So again, I think we see uh, an expression of these ten horns and coming together, uh, though separate nations, but yet and separate kingdoms yet working together uh, with the civil beast, uh, the, that which unites them together, and an ecclesiastical beast, 
as well as spoken of in the book of Revelation, which is to be understood as uh, the harlot, Church of Rome, the, the ecclesiastical beast uh, that brings together and has historically been the, um, the other side of that beast, the ecclesiastical beast. Uh, and uh, I submit will again assert itself according to prophetic revelation. And again, in Daniel 7, we'll get into more of the details related to that because there it speaks of this little horn which represents the, the papal antichrist. So when will this uh, occur? I should say that even uh, Tony Blair, former prime minister of, of uh, Britain, uh, called the European Union and uh, the United States of Europe uh, that we need to have, again, that type of uh, uh, solidity uh, amongst uh, the various European nations. They do have a, a common parliament. They do have a common flag. Um, and uh, uh, seeking to pursue a common military um, I suppose would be next, but uh, a common economic, monetary um, uh, policy as well. So it's definitely, I, I would submit, moving in that direction. But when will this occur? Well, again, it has, the striking of this image, I submit to you, has not yet occurred, um, uh, but will occur uh, yet in the future, at which time, according to uh, Revelation 17, 16, the harlot will be destroyed. The, the, the church, the harlot church of Rome will be destroyed. That has not happened yet. So again, I don't believe the prophecy has been realized yet. The striking of this image um, has not occurred because uh, the harlot has not been burned by those same 10 toes or those same 10 horns because they're the ones according to Revelation 17 16 that will burn that will destroy uh, the harlot so that hasn't happened yet uh, nor have the 10 kings uh, in their hostility to Jesus Christ and his kingdom yet been crushed um, certainly the Reformation period was a foretaste uh, throughout Europe, a foretaste of what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish uh, in Europe and throughout the whole world. But again, the Reformation did not bring, as we note, it did not bring to an end uh, the Church of Rome, uh, though it weakened it greatly at that point in time. It did not bring it to an end and, uh, and uh, did not bring those kingdoms um, that form Europe uh, to bow before Jesus Christ alone and to own him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords um, as manifested the fact that we still have that opposition and that, uh, adversity to Christ and his kingdom in Europe and those European nations still uh, do so. But when this happens, they will be crushed and his kingdom will rule over all of the earth. That has not taken place yet. So I submit to you, 
that this prophecy of the striking of the image is yet future, not in the past. Second question, how will the kingdom of Christ overcome the kingdoms of this world? And before I answer that question, uh, let me also say about the previous question, we're, we're going to get into more specific details about the precise timing of this because in Daniel 7, it talks about a period that it identifies as a time, times, and a half a time as being the period in which this war against the saints occurs. And then after that period of time, uh, there will be uh, the dissolution, the crushing of the, of the hostility of these nations against Jesus Christ. We'll look at that period of time. I'm not going to delve into it right now uh, because um, it's not immediately before us. I just wanted you to see that the timing of this striking of the image is yet future. It's going to happen when, again, uh, the Church of Rome uh, is burned, is destroyed by uh, the, the ten horns, and when the ten horns are crushed in their hostility to Christ, and then they come to serve Jesus Christ. They come to believe in Jesus Christ. They are reformed. Uh, they are brought to profess as nations Jesus Christ. That's in the future. That's basically all I wanted to say at this point. We'll look at, as I said in Daniel 7, more of the the specific timing of that when we get to that point. So back to the second question, how will the kingdom of Christ overcome the kingdoms of this world? Well, Christ's kingdom is different from all other kingdoms of this world. Uh, in fact, there is no kingdom that compares to and is like the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Just as there is no king like Jesus Christ, a king who reigns in power, absolute power, absolute righteousness, absolute justice, absolute love, and absolute mercy. So there is no kingdom that is like the kingdom of Jesus Christ. How is Christ's kingdom different from all other kingdoms. So, in verses 44 through 45, we read, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. The first uh, way in which the Christ's kingdom is different from all other kingdoms is that the rise of Christ's kingdom is not natural but is supernatural. It's a kingdom that is like a stone that is cut out of a mountain without the agency of man's hands. It's a supernatural kingdom 
It's not a kingdom that depends upon human power, a human, human military might, human resources. It's a kingdom that flourishes and grows independent of all of those natural ways in which all other kingdoms flourish. In verses 34 through 35, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, became like the, sh the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Though the kingdom of Jesus Christ is in the world, that is, it's cut out from the mountain, it is not of the world. It is cut without hands. In other words, its origin is supernatural. It's in the world, but not of the world. It doesn't come from this world. It comes from, from heaven. It comes from God. It comes from uh, the Lord Jesus. It's the result of God's power and God's grace. The supernatural origin of the stone points to the supernatural conception of Jesus Christ. His supernatural life, his miracles, his supernatural death, and receiving the punishment for all the sins of his people, his supernatural resurrection and being raised from the dead three days later, his supernatural ascension into the presence of God, his supernatural coronation, being seated at God's right hand, reigning as God's prince over all the kingdoms of this world. Christ's kingdom, next, Another difference, Christ's kingdom is essentially spiritual. Spiritual and heavenly and graciously converting sinners and nations to Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through that means bringing the nations, individuals, families, and nations under his lordship to submit to him, to submit to his royal law. Jesus said in John 18.36 to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Its origin is not from this world, it's from heaven. It's, that's why it's called in the New Testament the kingdom of heaven because that's where the origin of this kingdom is. Thus the primary means of subduing and crushing uh, nations, rebellious nations, is, is not through the power of the sword. 
but through the power of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is the primary means by which the Lord Jesus exercises his power in subduing lives and hearts and of individuals and families and of nations to himself. That's how he primarily crushes them and converts them so that they willingly, because of his work of grace, they willingly bow the knee to Jesus Christ as king of kings. In Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, we read, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of, of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The Lord makes his people willing to believe, to trust, to repent, to submit to him. That's how he primarily crushes the nations, grinds them into powder so that they, the hostility that they have for Jesus Christ is crushed and blown away. So they, they become nations that follow Christ and want to follow Christ and establish Christ as king of kings within their nation and establish a constitution that is a Christian constitution, explicitly a Christian constitution that is based upon the supreme law of God's word and establishes the one true religion, biblical religion of, of Christianity as the religion of that nation. As Jesus by his power converts the nations, righteous leaders and constitutions will be established in those nations. Civil justice at that time then will be used against the wicked and not against the righteous. It will be used to rather defend the righteous and the oppressed as righteous leaders establish Jesus as King of Kings. Biblical Christianity is the one true religion and civil laws that are agreeable to God's law. A third difference between Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. Christ's kingdom is mightier than all other kingdoms. None, absolutely none, will be able to resist the power of Christ's kingdom. In verse 44, <clears throat> and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. So there is no kingdom that is mightier, though again, it is a spiritual kingdom. There's no kingdom that's mightier than Christ's kingdom. Because 
Christ's kingdom is able to take all of the swords and the spears and, and the, uh, the weapons of war and to crush them and turn them into dust so that he reigns as the Prince of Peace. No kingdom can do that. No earthly kingdom can do that. Only Christ's kingdom can do that. None will be able to resist the power of Christ's kingdom. Psalm 110.5 The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Psalm 2, verses 8 through 9. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, that is, the Gentiles, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. This is what the Father says to the Son. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Revelation 19, verses 15 through 16, in that chapter, Jesus Christ is riding victoriously. This is, these are all figures of speech, but riding victoriously on his horse, on his um, victorious horse, and conquering the nations, bringing them. But how does he do so? And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. That, short, that uh, uh, sharp sword is the sword of the Spirit the word of God, that he will smite the nations with that. He will humble the nations. He will bring them willingly by way of his word unto himself. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. A fourth way in which Christ's kingdom is different from all other kingdoms. Christ's kingdom is universal. It may begin with ten kingdoms, ten toes, ten horns, but it will spread until it conquers all nations throughout the world. Verse 44, chapter 2, 44 says, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. All these kingdoms. And we read in Psalm 72, 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Isaiah 2, 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, to talk about a mountain is to talk about a kingdom. Mountains represented kingdoms in both prophetic literature and poetic literature in the Old Testament. And so when it speaks here of the mountain of the Lord's house, it's talking about the kingdom of Christ. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, above all the kingdoms of the world. And shall be exalted above all, or above the hills. And notice, and all nations shall flow into it. All nations shall flow into it. A fifth way in which Christ's kingdom is different from all other kingdoms 
Christ's kingdom will grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole earth. Daniel 2.35 And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It started off as a smaller stone. It'd have to be fairly small to strike specifically at the feet and at the toes of the image that are of iron and clay rather than smiting it as a larger stone, smiting uh, the, the legs. Uh, it doesn't say that that was what was smitten. So it would have to be small enough to hit directly there. But yet it becomes, as it grows, it becomes a mighty mountain or kingdom that fills the whole earth. And that's, uh, again, simply to, uh, to state what uh, is true and found in Christ's parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13, verses 31 through 32, where it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven, notice, origin of the kingdom is from heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds but when it is grown it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof here the image of a of a tree uh, likewise in poetic and prophetic literature is that of a kingdom and the fowl, the birds of the air are the kings that come and rest in the shade of that kingdom of Christ. And so this happens though from a, the smallest seed they knew of at that time, a mustard seed. It grows and so will Christ's kingdom grow. It, uh, the kingdom of Christ had very, very humble beginnings. Uh, think of uh, the, uh, the 12 apostles, fishermen, you know, not uh, intellectual uh, scholars, but uh, here were simple fishermen uh, that were uh, the 12 that uh, Jesus chose. Very humble beginnings. Jesus himself uh, didn't travel outside of the immediate area there. We know of Israel and um, perhaps into what is now uh, Lebanon. Uh, but, but that, again, was uh, the, the uh, nature of this kingdom. It started very small, and yet uh, it grows and it manifests itself throughout history as it grows, uh, especially... I would submit to you various periods of history, as I said, the kingdom of Christ becomes more and more visible in its growth. The Reformation period is a highlight in the growth of Christ's kingdom. And, uh, but it will eventually, once that image is struck and toppled, uh, it will increase and it will grow uh, exponentially from that point to fill the whole earth, according to this 
prophecy. And then finally, the sixth way in which the kingdom of Christ is different from all other kingdoms of this world. Christ's kingdom shall be forever and ever. It shall never be destroyed, as were all these other kingdoms. They were all destroyed in the image of that Nebuchadnezzar saw Babylon was overtaken by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was overtaken by Greece. Greece was overtaken by Rome. United Rome was overtaken by the ten toes or the ten horns. But there's coming a kingdom which is already here, but there is coming a manifestation of that kingdom so glorious that it says again that that kingdom uh, will stand forever in verse 44. All these other kingdoms will be consumed, but it, and it shall stand forever. It shall never be destroyed as all the others were. Revelation 11.15, we read, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that's how, in answer to the question, how the kingdom of Christ will overcome the kingdoms of this world. And all we have left is then the third question. Is this a mere possibility that this is going to happen? Or is this an absolute certainty that this is going to happen? Verse 45 Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. No uncertainty, no mere possibility, this will come to pass. Just as the other kingdoms that are mentioned in the image, all were fulfilled and realized historically. Just as God said, just as it was true in the dream. So this striking of the image will come true as certainly as we see he fulfilled it in the past so he will just as certainly fulfill this dream in the future. Daniel tells the king that God revealed to him in this dream that this stone would which was Christ's kingdom would destroy all hostile nations against Christ's kingdom And he declared it not a possibility, not a probability, not a a real, real potential probability, but an absolute certainty that this will happen. All things, dear ones, as I come to a close, 
by way of application today. All things have been put under Christ's feet, even wicked nations and evil rulers have been placed under Christ's feet for the good, we're told in Ephesians 1.22, for the good of his church, for the good of Christ's kingdom. If King Jesus can subdue me to himself willingly because I am a, by nature a wicked sinner, that has transgressed God's law, and I deserve his condemnation, but he has subdued me by his grace unto himself, and he has subdued you by his grace unto himself. If he can do that, he can subdue a nation of sinners like you and me unto himself. It's not, it's not again, to, to the human mind uh, perhaps, again, the weak, the limited human mind, uh, that could never happen. But again, uh, we know how God has changed our hearts. Therefore, we are confident he can change the hearts of millions like us within a nation. He's the creator. The ori- if the original creation uh, in six days is is unspeakable, is, is so glorious. I submit to you that the new creation, wherein the Lord takes one who is dead in his trespasses and sins and makes that one alive to Jesus Christ so that he becomes a new creation in Jesus Christ is even a greater miracle than that original creation. What a glorious and precious prophecy the Lord has given to us here as we face the tyranny of nations today that despise Christ's kingdom of truth, of righteousness, of justice, of love, of grace, and of power. This prophecy will be realized in history. This truth, dear ones, keeps us from despair, keeps us from hopelessness. At such a time as this, this truth keeps us, dear ones, trusting in Jesus Christ, even when the vast multitudes of people ridicule us, mock us, despise us, persecute us for standing for that which is indestructible the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But which kingdom will destroy all other kingdoms, will destroy all other nations, will make them who are hostile, will make them friends and lovers of Jesus Christ. Nothing will stand in the way of Christ's kingdom. The mighty kingdom and empire of Rome as great as it was for hundreds, for a thousand years that it reigned, could not stop the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ brought an end to that united Roman Empire, that pagan Roman Empire brought an end to it. The perversion that we find in the Church of Rome 
and its assault against biblical Christianity and all other false religions that bring uh, their, their assault and attack against the one true religion, they cannot stand in the way. They will be crushed and God will bring out of even those who are involved in false religion. He will bring out his elect from them unto himself. The skepticism of this world will not stand in the way of, of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In its misuse of science, its misuse of history and philosophy, nothing will be able to stand before Christ. Even the worldliness and the pleasures of this life, the mighty enemies will not stand against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All will fall before the Lord Jesus. And remember, dear ones, our real battle is not against flesh and blood. Our real battle is against spiritual enemies. Against spiritual, wicked, evil forces. Against even the enemy within the, our flesh and our sins. But all of these enemies have already been put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Is there anything, therefore, too hard, too difficult for King Jesus? If Jesus will, will turn the nations from hating the gospel and his righteous commandments to embracing the gospel by faith alone and submitting to his righteous commandments, then is there any lack of power on the part of Jesus to save us, to save our rebellious children, grandchildren, who have fallen away, or even to save our enemies? No lack of power on the part of King Jesus. Our salvation, dear ones, is not in the arm of flesh. Our salvation is in the rock that is cut out of the mountain without human hands. That's who our confidence is in, in a supernatural Christ, not in a natural man that can accomplish only temporary desires and wishes and rule and reign, but in the eternal Christ. Our salvation now and for all eternity, dear ones, is in the almighty hands of King Jesus. All of the kingdoms of this world and all of the false religions of this world will fall before the power of our King. Nothing shall be impossible to our King. Let us stand together in prayer. King Jesus, we come before thee to honor thee, to lift up thy holy, righteous, most gracious and most powerful name. We thank thee, our Lord, that thy kingdom rules over all, that all things have been put under thy feet for the good of thy people and the good of thy kingdom, thy church.
We pray, our Lord, that thou would hasten the time when all these kingdoms uh, will be crushed and destroyed as enemies of Christ and made to be the friends of Christ and the lovers of Christ. We ask our Lord that we would continue to look and hope to that time that we be not overwhelmed by fear and panic at this time as we consider the tyranny of nations. But that Lord, that we continue to know, believe, and with a certain hope uh, that Jesus Christ reigns and he will crush the nations of this world that are in rebellion against him. Lord, thank thee and praise thee. And we, we would cling to this, this truth as we walk throughout the day. For it's not only tyranny in nations, but we have many enemies, and Jesus Christ has already conquered them all. Let us therefore flee to Christ for the help and the strength we need every single day. In Jesus' name, amen.